And he looks at me and he's like, Dad, 80 bucks, no, no big deal. I'm like, oof, this is uh, going to be a good lesson. So then I filled out all of the paperwork and became a Lyft driver. And the purpose of me becoming a Lyft driver, and again, I'm EVP of worldwide sales at Instructure at this point, was I'm going to show my son how damn hard it is to earn $80 and how much time that can actually take. Hi, I'm Jubin, go-to-market partner at Kleiner Perkins, and this is GTMG, a show that interviews world-class revenue and go-to-market leaders to explore how they operate, think, and deploy grit every day in order to build incredible companies. Now let's get to the episode. Mark, welcome to the show. Thank you. I read all of my guests' backgrounds back to them. I will screw up. When I do, you tell me what I screwed up, and we can go from there. You went to Indiana University, and you got your BS in HR and Ops Management. Then you went to Certico, probably mispronounced that, as the Director of Ops. You spent three years there from 98 to 2001. Then you went to Higher Right, had a great run there, started as an AE, did four years of AE work, and then VP of Sales. Felt like you got your first real quota-carrying leadership role there. Did two and a half years of that. Then you were the SVP of Global Sales for five years. Then you went to Instructure as the SVP and then EVP of Sales for four years. Then you went to Glint, spent a year and a half pre-acquisition about at Glint, was sold to LinkedIn in 2018. You spent about three years at LinkedIn. And then as of January of 2021, so is that a year and a half? I've lost all track of dates, times, weeks, weekends. It doesn't even make a difference anymore. It's only anymore. eight months. 2021, January. Holy shit. Eight months ago, you became the president of field ops at BetterUp. How'd I do? Perfect. That was a good win for you. Probably didn't change your life. I would actually argue that what did change your perspective in life more than the money there was spending three years at LinkedIn. We've had a lot of the LinkedIn mafia on this podcast, and I'm going to get to that in one second. What was your first ever job? First ever? Ever. Anytime someone pays you cash, check, put anything in a direct deposit for you, first ever job. I was a waiter at Waffle House. Where? In Noblesville, Indiana. I think I was 15 or 16. All right. You make good tips or what? Yeah. I hustle. All right. Okay. Everyone comes from humble beginnings. I have a few questions that I want to ask specific to your background. And then I want to talk a bunch about better up. I want to talk about leadership, your team. I want to talk about a little bit of field operations and rev ops. So let's just get into it because we're not going to have enough time to cover all this ground. You were part of two IPOs within structure and higher right. And then you had an acquisition in Glint. What was the difference? When you have one liquidity event versus the other, are there any ways that you manage and coach the team through those different IPO versus acquisition? Not really. I mean, both generally can get distracting. Distracting relative to your vision, your mission, your value. So my experience is, is the very best leaders have a calm hand on the tiller as you navigate change in these murky waters. Everybody views an IPO as the end state. It's really just a milestone. And if you really truly believe in your vision of your company, the mission to pursue that vision, and then the strategic imperative, it's really transformative. And 
an IPO is simply a capitalization event that helps you pursue that vision mission more, faster, better. It leads to a little credence in your brand as well. So I'd say they're all the same with regard to an IPO or an acquisition. It's mostly just about helping folks understand that this is really just a milestone. Yes, maybe you will be able to pay for your kiddo's college and that's going to be completely awesome. And it does change lives for the individuals that help us all get there. But it's really a milestone. You mentioned distracting. I've been a part of these acquisitions. If you're a sales rep and you have a couple deals pipeline that you're working, it's very, very easy to get a little bit complacent. How do you continue to drive mission and vision? How do you continue to encourage things like pipeline generation that's really not the sexiest thing in the world anyway, when the rumors are already out, whether it's on the internet, whether it's gone through the hallways of the office? How do you think about that? For me personally, the way that I've been able to thread that needle is through formalized career development for any individual in the company that wants to engage in this. So in other words, let's just say you're an AE and you want to become an RVP and then you want to become a VP and then you want to become the CRO, president, CEO. I've done this at Higher Right. It started there. I had a really good mentor and this guy named Glenn Schrank that helped me understand how to do this. But I've carried that forward and these are simply Excel templates for career development planning And what it allows you to do is help someone look in the mirror. What am I really great at today? Whether it's forecasting, pipeline management, I have a really strong work ethic, I sign up for the grind, I don't get distracted, I can do rope pipeline building, I can close deals. What do you really need to be great at in the next role? And to be great at the next role, you have to diagnose what are the things that you need to be awesome at, and then you build a bridge between all of the super awesome strengths that you have today to all of the skills and experiences that you have to have to be excellent at the next job. And as long as you commit to that, things really don't get distracting. Meaning if you do a formal career development plan, regardless of what's going on in the macroeconomic environment, you're literally just kind of chasing these next milestones. For example, how do you build up your executive presence? How do you build up your communication skills? How do you build up your ability to speak publicly, effectively? When you're an AE, oftentimes you just don't have experience for that. And so what we try to do is get you that experience. So you'll shadow me on interviews. You have to be able to hire, retain, and grow talent. How do you really do that? And part of the career development plan is helping you just get those experiences and those skills that you just haven't had exposure to. And when you commit to it, It is the number one inoculator against getting folks distracted. What's in the actual spreadsheet? What are the inputs? The first one is, is what job do you want? And what is that job description? So literally a Google search. On the left-hand side, it's what do you think you're great at? So look in the mirror and tell me what you think you're great at. And I'm not going to interrogate that. I'm going to concede it all. And then essentially what I do is I help you fill out on the right-hand side of this, what do you need to be great at that you haven't had exposure to? And oftentimes for an AE, like I said, it's they don't interview a ton of people. They don't do executive level communications a lot, like internal ones. They generally don't have exposure to building a capacity model or bookings plan or a bookings walk or 
They know how to forecast for themselves, but they don't know how to forecast for others. They don't know how to call BS on conservative forecasters, overly aspirational ones, and accurate ones. And so they need exposure to all of these things. And it's just really simple to do. And it creates this actual virtuous circle. So I do tons of career planning for people not in the go-to-market organization too. I'll have a couple going on at any given time with folks that are in FP&A. And so folks that are in FP&A know how to do a model. They know how to build a bookings walk. They can build a killer capacity model with reasonable ramp times using accurate data. But what they generally haven't had exposure to is how to explain that to someone that is not expert. And so when you build these career plans, they become pretty virtuous in nature, meaning it's a system. You can help someone plus up their ability to talk simply to somebody that doesn't have exposure to that. And then conversely, the person that doesn't have exposure, they learn how to build the model. And these things kind of build on each other. And so that's one of the reasons, I mean, honestly, we've been able to grow tremendous careers out of people. Is it a privilege or a right to do career planning with Mark? What I mean by that is, does everyone do that? Is it only high potential people? Because I would imagine a world where if everyone does career planning with Mark, but not everyone is high potential or has the potential to get to that next step, that would be a tricky conversation. How do you think about it? Yeah, well, honestly, we tell everybody in the company, this is important to us. We want to help you reach both your personal and professional aspirations. And the very best way to do that is through these career plans. And you'd be surprised. A lot of people don't take you up on it. Let's imagine Jubin, in this case, will say goes to the Kleiner partnership and says, I want to be a general partner at Kleiner. I want to be an investor. I want to manage the fund. I want all the carry. I want it all. And let's assume, which they probably would, that I'm extremely unqualified to do that. Let's assume, which they probably would, that they don't see the potential in me to go and manage the firm one day. How would you approach that conversation if you were on their side? So every single one of us has unbelievable potential. And if you really have the will, then skill comes easy because you can build skills. It's not about the smartest guy in the room. It's about the person that has the most will, the most grit to go chase whatever their personal and professional aspirations are. And if you've got the will, the skill comes because you can build skills. Oh, this is fascinating. So let's take this a step further. What percentage of people do you think take you up on the career planning? For me personally, probably 15 to 20 percent. When you do it with your RVP team and you do it with your VP team, that is a skill that is required to be a killer CRO, building yeah. and growing the careers of others. And so, again, this is a system. It's very, very self-serving, too, meaning when you do a formalized career plan with an RVP, you're literally teaching them how to do a formalized career plan with everyone on their team. And these things build on each other. We have more than 100 of these going on right now. And it was the same thing at Glint. It's the same thing at Instructure, same thing at HireRight. And it turns into a real system to help people recognize things that they're not great at, that they need to improve. It gets them exposure to things that they need to really be exposed to, to be excellent at the next job. 
And it turns into this virtuous cycle, like I said, because when you start doing it outside of your organization and cross-functionally, FP&A folks, as an example, they're not great sometimes being patient and thoughtful and explaining a model to someone that hasn't had previous exposure to that. And that is one of the skills that they have to have in order to become a CFL. Let's assume I was an RVP on your team and I was all in on this idea of the career plan. And I was determined to be action-oriented towards the key tenants that we believe would enable me to get to your job. How do you like the benchmarking and measurement and communication of that to happen? What is your ideal framework for, you know, you want me to reach out to you every month? Guess what I did? Here's some specific examples. Do you like a quarterly update? How do you think about the mutual tracking of progress towards those goals? We do a one-to-one every two weeks with whoever's doing the career plan. And in that one-to-one, there are really specific actions. And there's generally three at any given time. So for example, let's say you're an AE and you want to become an RVP. In order to become an RVP, you have to be great at identifying and growing talent. You have to be great at it. It's required to do that job really well. And so if you're an AE and you don't have a ton of exposure to hiring people and looking at resumes and understanding what are the correct questions to ask, how to ask that second level, third level, fourth level question to really get at the heart of whether someone's going to leave everything on the mat for you or not. If you don't have exposure to that, that's really hard skills to build. And so how do you get it? Well, you shadow a ton of interviews. And so in the action plan, I will shadow interviews. And then you do it cross-functionally. So you partner up with whoever your recruiting partner is. And for the next 10 interviews that we have, you're simply going to sit there and shadow and take notes. And you're going to think about what questions did someone ask? Why did they ask that question? And then we're going to talk about that during the one-to-one. And it helps you build this muscle memory. So when you're actually in the seat, you've had multiple repetitions prior to actually getting on the field. And you're really good at it when you exit this process. What else, AE to RVP, besides building and identifying talent, do you think is super important? A lot of AEs listen to this show. Yeah, you have to be able to forecast for others. Here's what I mean by that, is that people fall into three buckets with regard to forecasting. There are those that are super aspirational. My gosh, this is gonna happen. I understand the DMU, I've filled out all my medic. I've got the champion, there's ink in the pen of the CFO, I totally get it, no one's on vacation, this is gonna happen, period. And oftentimes what happens is, is when everything's lined up, a deal will slip. And that's totally cool, that can happen. But my point is, is that what great RVPs do is they come up with their own 50-50 number. This is actually something that I learned from Mike Darrison and I learned it from Dan Shapiro at LinkedIn, the concept of your 50-50 is really important. What is your 50-50 forecast? Meaning you flip a coin, what do you think you're really gonna do? And so when you talk about it that way and don't overly pressurize this whole thing and give me a blood commit, all these silly things that we've all learned not to do over the years, and you just want the AE's real opinion, it's about building that muscle for folks to have psychological safety to tell you what they really believe. And so what I think great RVPs do is they build that psychological safety so they get to the heart of the matter, they get to the truth of what do you believe is going to happen this quarter, next quarter, 
Help me understand the composition of your pipeline. Help me understand where deals are in the sales process. And they have a really good nose for the ball and a really good knack for helping people arrive to the correct number. So what I mean by forecasting for others is, is you're not telling them what to sign up for. You're telling them how to arrive to what is most likely the truth. And if you take that a step further, what that ends up doing is when you are forced to give your own 50-50, the downstream consequences of that are that you have to have really candid and real conversations with your reps. You need to make sure that they trust you and you trust them, to your point. And you need to make sure that you understand the tendencies and biases of everybody on your team, which means that you have to understand their business inside and out. Dan Shapiro, when I had him on the show, I asked him about forecasting. And he said, Jubin, honestly, I don't really care about the number that a rep forecasts to me. I want to understand the process. And the process behind forecasting for me is important because this is a signal to me of how well they understand their business. That's all it means. And so I think you could kind of extrapolate that as a leader as well and make sure you do all the right things to understand the rep's business. Right. And I think for folks like Dan and me even sometimes, by the time the truth gets to you, sometimes it's really dilute. And so you literally got to focus on making sure that folks are comfortable psychologically telling you the truth. So for the audience listening, Dan Shapiro is, was the CRO of LinkedIn when Blink got acquired, now is the COO. So I'll give you another Danism while we're on the thread here. I asked Dan what the most important quality is of a leader. And without skipping a beat, he said self-awareness. And the reason that he said that was because, exactly to your point, as you go up in your career, there is less oxygen at higher altitudes, which means that less data starts to flow to you. And what that means is that you don't know the truth all the time, unless you can really look at yourself in the mirror and have a lot of honest conviction in the way that you're seeing the ball. And you got to be honest about that. A hundred percent. And you got to create an environment where folks are absolutely comfortable telling you the truth. Here, I'll give you an example. We're redoing territories right now. The data from Zoom Info and other sources is oftentimes pretty junky in navigating parent-child account hierarchies and making sure that you're treating the AE team as your customer, because that's what they are. You got to treat your customer awesome in order for them to treat their customer awesome. And so you want to get this right. You don't want to screw with territories, quotas, comp. You want to make sure that it's absolutely perfect and it benefits them. And we didn't get this perfect. And you want to create an environment where people can tell you that this is garbage, man. Can you please do a redo? Absolutely. Thank you so much for telling me the truth. There's a lot of smiles on your team listening to this right now. Speaking of Dan Shapiro, it's a good transition. I was messaging him this morning and he and I were talking and I told him, I said, hey, I have Mark on the podcast this afternoon. Same question I ask all the references that I do before my shows. You know, what do you have? Give me some dirt. Give me some inside baseball. And it was very hard to find dirt on you, which is kind of annoying. But he said, I know Mark well. I was responsible for the acquisition of Glint. So I have some questions and I have some more thoughts that I want to share that Dan shared with me. And then we can go from there. Is that okay? Yeah, great. All right. This is just a personal Jubin curiosity question. How much time did you spend with Dan in diligence? And in that diligence, 
one of the things that Dan said to me was that you should ask Mark about our cultures. We both had very strong cultures. So maybe using the culture thing as a framework or context, how much of you and Dan's dosi do was spent figuring out if the cultures were compatible versus the business and the sales styles. Tell me more about what was he evaluating and what were you evaluating in that process? Because I know that generally, if there is a sponsor from a company like LinkedIn or Microsoft that comes in and that person's revenue oriented, one of the first people they're talking to is the CRO. So in this case, you. It was fascinating. So I probably had four or five different diligence meetings with Dan and a group of individuals, M&A folks at LinkedIn. And it felt amazing from a cultural standpoint. One of the biggest things that I worried about, and Jim Barnett especially, the CEO of Glint worried about, is finding a great place for our people to land. This was not an economic decision for us. We believe, and it still is true, when you listen to your people, and that's what Glint is, it's a listening platform. When you listen to your people and you help managers and, and others understand what you're doing well and what you're not doing so well, and you help them understand how to take action against that to improve engagement, motivation, energy. When you do that really well as a company, it helps you hit your vision, your mission, and makes your people happier. And so that's what Glint is. And so we really believe that this is an incredibly transformative platform that the world needs, and it needs it for its people. And LinkedIn saw that. LinkedIn is an unbelievable people-oriented company, and Dan is one of the true ambassadors of that. I'll never forget, in the first all hands, he's like, look, Jim Barnett has taken care of people in this company, and I'm going to renew that contract. I'm going to take care of everybody here. And that's who Dan is. He is a people-oriented person who happens to be wicked smart, and it leaks out of every pore in his body. And that's why people like to work there. I couldn't agree more with everything he's saying, obviously. He's a superstar. And it is not a surprise that I have now had, what, six, seven-plus CROs on this show, all of whom have come from LinkedIn in one way or another under the tutelage of Dan Shapiro or Mike Gamson. That is not an accident. So I never um, had the opportunity to work with Mike, and I was bummed because I heard he's like a 15 out of 10 in charisma engagement. I heard that he's got this near photographic memory, and these are things that I wanted to learn from, I wanted to witness. And so I sent him a LinkedIn note shortly following the acquisition, and I'm just like, oh my gosh, I'm a little bit bummed, I think I said, that we're not gonna get to work together and I'm not gonna be able to see your magic because everybody I talk to is like, wow, this guy was absolutely amazing. So periodically we just swap notes. I've never met him in person. I've never talked to him on the phone, but we'll swap notes on LinkedIn and it's pretty fun. Yeah, he and I went for a walk through his neighborhood maybe a couple of months ago and he is as advertised. Maybe one more question on the LinkedIn stuff and then I have a lot of other things that I wanna to get to specifically around BetterUp. You inherited a team. You had a team and then you got more of a team when you came to LinkedIn from Glint, is that right? What ended up happening is, is, so I was head of sales at Glint, and then after the acquisition, Jim, I think he stuck around for, I don't remember exactly how long, probably a year, 
And then after Jim left, I got a really expanded remit across the entire company, almost running all of go-to-market with the exception of marketing. So that's when the team really got expanded. And LinkedIn's organized in a slightly unique way in that the go-to-market leaders, like the traditional sales leaders, they generally manage half of their various businesses. So Darazin, Mark Labosco, they're managing huge organizations and they're really operators at heart. So they have a PhD in selling, obviously, but they're really, really good general managers. Is there anything you do differently when you go through that whole thing again? This is all new to you. You've now become the GM of your own domain. You're distancing yourself a little bit from a direct audit line to only revenue. You're at a huge company now with a lot of different people around you. You got to take care of your old team. You got to figure out how to build relationships with your new team and rapport. Did you screw anything up? If you were to do that all over again, are there things that you kind of get a knot in your stomach about that you wish you did differently? Yeah, I mean, I think, honestly, you get back to the things that you're not proud of. And maybe one of the things that I'm not proud of is anytime you get acquired by a very big company, even though that company is amazing with regard to the people, Oftentimes what can happen is, is things slow down. There's more rules, there's more bureaucracy, there's more this, there's more that. And you can let that type of thing get annoying. Remember, people kind of draft off of your own mindsets oftentimes. And if you let it get annoying, then it can become annoying for everyone. And so in hindsight, the thing that I'm probably least proud of is that I let some of the slowness get annoying. And I think probably the best way to think about it now is that rules, compliance, contracting rules, et cetera, even though I didn't think it was prudent at the time, turned out to be really, really prudent. And so a lot of the rules that LinkedIn with regard to using their own paper, not negotiating agreements, I'll just give you a couple of examples, mm -hmm. not negotiating on price, like these hard and fast rules that you can't break. Turns out that those are like Brembo brakes on a Porsche. It actually helps you go faster in the end. And that was something that I learned. And I learned it from Darazin. I learned it from Dan. And it's something that I'll carry forward. If you think that these things are annoying and they're getting in your way, they're actually not. They actually help you go faster. And they help you do it at unbelievable scale. When you're annoyed, what does that look like? Mm. Yeah, good question. I try not to leak it. I'm pretty self-aware. I guess I complain to my wife more. I don't know. You don't think the team feels that? They do. No. I mean, like I said, regardless of how much you want to cover up these things from your team, they can see it. And it shows up in your energy. It shows up in your authenticity. So yeah, they can absolutely see it. But it does in weird little instances too. It brings you closer together because you share this mutual pain that you think you're going through. And in the end, like I said before, it turns out not to be pain. It just turns out to be a mindset. And I do think it is a balance. On the one hand, you do both want to commiserate and like, are you kidding me? They're not going to let us take 5% off this deal to get it done tomorrow. And we're going to negotiate for another quarter because of these principles. And then on the other hand, you kind of want to be the shepherd of their new environment. 
that is your job as a leader is to embody the values of that new company. Whether or not you may or may not agree with them, you have to disagree, then commit at the door. And I think that commitment needs to be shared across the team. Fair? As far as acquisitions go, this was an absolute breeze. It wasn't like a PE firm bought us and all of a sudden you're burning furniture and growing on the other end. It was, wow, you got acquired by an unbelievable people-oriented company. And everybody thinks selling operations and sales strategy is like this thing that manages Salesforce and territories, et cetera. LinkedIn, I learned more about selling operations in my tenure there than I've learned throughout my entire career. I learned what complete awesome is. It's really cool. Better up. This company has a valuation of, well, pretty recently 1.73 billion. Shortly after you joined, that was a $125 million Series D funding from Iconic and Lightspeed, Salesforce Ventures, et cetera. Customer growth of 80% year over year from 2020 to 2021. Enterprise customers from Chevron to Google to Twilio to Workday. This is a serious business. Offices in Germany and the UK. Software is already sold in 46 plus countries and 90, 90 languages and more. I could take my hand in it, but could you give the 30 second pitch? What does BetterUp do? BetterUp is a human transformation platform. And our vision is to become the preeminent human transformation platform on the planet. And we deliver that through helping people find greater clarity, purpose, and passion, both in their personal and professional lives. And so that's what it does. And it does that through a whole person assessment. And then we deploy a bunch of different coaching and help modalities against that, whether it's one-to-one, like personal coaching. It might be extended network coaching, like an app store of different specialists for sleep, health, physical activity, how to be a more inclusive leader from a diversity, inclusion, belonging standpoint. So there's an app store of specialized coaches against a generalist coach. And there's two things. It's inspiring as a leader and thriving as a human. And by focusing on both of those, you complete people and they just do better. When they're thriving in their personal life, they do great in their professional life and vice versa. So at Chevron, how would this work for one of their employees? We take a feed from Workday or whatever their system of record is. And so there's a roster management function. And then you simply send an invite email to take this whole person assessment. And the whole person assessment helps that individual understand what their strengths are and what they need to work on. And then the algorithm runs against that whole person assessment and matches them up to the best suited coach to help them with the greatest possible impact. And then the person engages in coaching. And what you see is a transformation over time from that first whole person assessment to their first reflection point, their mindsets and behaviors shift. And when you map it out at a huge organization like a Chevron or a Google or whoever, you see a heat map of absolute transformation across critical mindsets and behaviors to help people thrive. Have you heard of our portfolio companies, Modern Health and Thrive Global? Have you heard of either of them? This feels like it's kind of in the middle of the two of them. This is a bit of a hybrid. I'm actually sitting in Thrive's office in New York City right now recording this podcast. And there are some pretty 
darn good tailwinds for this business right now. Obviously, COVID is one, but COVID was just an accelerant for people to be aware that the lines between mental, physical, personal, professional life have started to considerably blur. And I think that has honestly, more than anything, opened the eyes of employers to do more, to take the onus on themselves to be better at supporting their employees because ultimately they're going to drive better performance. Is that fair? Yeah, 100%. Yeah, I mean, there's significant macroeconomic tailwinds and COVID is one of those. The rapid digitization of the world, I think Satya put it extremely well. We've seen evolution skip a couple beats here with the rapid digitization. There's other things like a lot of the racial injustice and there's these macro tailwinds that help any business. And right now the tide is absolutely rising for companies like Thrive, like BetterUp, like Lyra, like Modern Health, like Spring Health. And there's a really good awakening. You probably saw Simone Biles, you saw Charles Johnson on the recent induction to Hall of Fame speech. He's literally talking about mental health. So there's this stigma that has been significantly removed and very rapidly over the course of the last couple of years. And when you look at human populations, so not talking about companies, but you look at just the human populace, there are those individuals that are thriving and flourishing. There are those individuals that are clinically suffering, whether it's PTSD or depression or whatever. And everybody else that's not thriving and flourishing or clinically suffering is in the middle. And Adam Grant coined this as languishing. And what BetterUp does at its very core is it helps people prevent themselves from getting into the clinical suffering part. And it helps people move into the thriving and flourishing part. And it helps them stay there longer. Piggybacking on that. So Simone Biles, Naomi Osaka, the tennis player, what they have given us permission to do is languish. And that word, I think, is an operative one. But I do think that it is incumbent on those who we idolize as top performers physically to not conflate that with the pressures that they have mentally. When you tell Simone Biles or Naomi, going into the Olympics, you're telling her that She's the greatest of all time. And I just don't know how that doesn't get to someone's head. I just don't know how that doesn't impact someone. And it's been a shame for most of our lives that you would put that pressure on someone. We would create that as a culture and then punish them for not being able to languish. I just think that's so sad. Anyone that thought that she did the incorrect thing is absolutely incorrect. Anyone that thought that she somehow let people down, they're nuts. Because it's her life and she knows what's best for her. I agree. As if she hasn't been training for four, five years now for this moment. And she got stage fright after 10, 15 medals after being the most deadly. It wasn't even stage fright. Of course not. She's been there, done that. If she thought she could operate at an extreme level and help the team, she would have done that. But she knew that, I mean, I don't know if you watch some of these videos, but this twisties thing, yeah. that's a real thing. And when you get into that zone, it's like the yips. If you're a golfer, you're missing three footers that you used to make hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times over. And so this is a real psychological thing that gets in the way of connecting what you want your body to do from your mind 
And she absolutely did the correct thing. Look, I'm not the world's best golfer here, but I've had rounds where I pull out my 60 from 40 yards and in, and I shank every single one of them. And I'm like, this is, this is a scary, scary feeling. Or the pitcher in baseball some time ago who could not throw it to first base. He had to underhand it. He couldn't throw it to first base. He had to run over there. It's a thing. The other way that I think of languishing and why I think better up is really interesting is that it enables long-term orientation and endurance. It gives us the ability to have grit. And often that is a pretty key leading indicator of success is just pushing through. And you're starting to see a lot more tools like BetterUp enable us to do that and have longevity. I found it really interesting and we're completely off the script here. So one of the trends that we've seen is that we want CEOs in our portfolio and in other venture portfolios to go the distance. We believe founder-led companies, generally speaking, have better returns and outcomes and for everybody. You start to see when these big rounds are being raised that venture capital is actually encouraging CEOs to take money off the table because it's like, hey, you've been chipping away at this for 10 years. You have family that you need to take care of. There's things you need to do. We want you to endure. And if taking a little bit of money off the table now helps with longevity, you should do it. That $4 billion round that you just raised, sure, we think you're going to get to 10 or 12 or 15. But if that gives you the ability to get to that point, we think you should do it. The other thing that I thought was funny, and I'd love you to comment on this, Todd McKinnon, the CEO of Okta, he put a post on LinkedIn and then he sent an email to his entire company. You know what I'm talking about? And it said he made everyone send him their PTO schedule for the year. Every single employee he asked personally, to send their PTO schedule. And it's because if you take the languishing thing, I think people are worried, leaders are worried that it's not the quantity of work, it's the quality. And if we can't take time away, we're just gonna burn out. What do you think about that? I 100% agree. I think one of the biggest impediments to these high-flying growth companies is this concept of boiling the ocean there's so much opportunity all over the place. And so you've got to be able to distill all that down into the few things that you need to do in a super high quality manner. And taking PTO and burnout and those types of things, it helps people get focused. And so I think it's really important. And I completely agree with it. Especially right now, there is a huge blending of work-life, personal life, navigation of return to work, there's a ton of anxiety in the world with regard to when I send my kiddos to school or they're going to be masked or not. And are people going to continue to get sick with the Delta variant? So there's a ton of anxiety. There's a ton of stress. And I think helping people create boundaries a little bit between work life, home life, and showing up authentically for your family. I think those are really, really important. And I think Todd is touching on that, which is, no one has really taken a vacation in the last 18 to 24 months and it's hard to unplug and you're constantly on Zoom and the world has changed so dramatically. So giving people permission to unplug, take time off and telling them not only is it okay, but pretty please do this. Do this for me, do this for you. Take some time off, go unplug, recharge, refocus. I think it's incredibly important. It's a great message. Your CEO, Alexi, has talked about the whole person approach. 
And the way that he articulated it, which I found fascinating, was that he said, if you're a professional and you're hurting on the inside, that will hurt you on the outside. And he said, if you want to drive performance, to do that, driving performance is not very different than if we want to drive flourishing in your personal life. I've been thinking a lot about this quote. I read this last night and it kept me up just thinking about this. What does that mean to you? How do you think about that? When you think about your team and the things that you can do for your team to drive flourishment in their personal life, what does that mean? It sounds kind of fluffy, but I get it so deeply. Yeah, what does that mean? Let me give you an example. Withholding names, let's just say that there's a AE and they've had a very successful 10-year run at SAP, as an example. And during COVID, that AE was basically chained to their desk, building pipeline, closing deals, et cetera. And they gained 40 pounds. They're not getting a great night's sleep. Let's just say as an example. And then let's say this person is receptive to getting help. Something's just not quite right. Not in their work life, but in their personal life. They're not happy with the night's sleep that they're getting. They're not happy with something. When you deploy and that person is receptive to getting help, and you deploy a specialist, like I have a nutrition coach right now. And when you feel great in your personal life, you're getting a great night's sleep and you have an abundance of energy and you're able to connect more deeply with your family, your friends, those that you love, that absolutely leaks into your ability to connect with your team, provide thoughtful, timely, relevant feedback to other people you work with. And view the world with abundance and your ability to take feedback and not take it personally and your ability to just have more energy and more authenticity, more connectedness, your overall well-being, it absolutely leaks into your company performance. And when you do that at unbelievable scale, it is a tide that rises every single boat. And in that example, what do you view as your role as that person's boss or leader? How do you communicate to them in an empathetic way that you want them to take care of themselves. You literally tell them that and you talk to them. I mean, when you do your one-to-ones, it's like, how are you doing? How's your family? Is there anything I can do to give you a hand? And honestly, you treat everybody in the company and it's a pendulum, right? Because you have to thread the needle between hard charging, dependability, accountability, hitting numbers, etc. But when you create this environment for people to absolutely thrive because you care about them as humans, they give you 100% of what they got. In the process of trying to dig dirt on Mark, I heard a story that was the opposite, which was doesn't make for the drama that I really want on the show, right? But that's okay. I've heard different variations of a similar just way that you are from many people. And the story was that you live in kind of the outskirts of Utah, we'll keep it vague, and you have a tractor. And it was snowing, and one of your neighbors had a bunch of snow, and next thing you know, Mark Malloy is driving around the neighborhood, tractoring snow off of everyone's driveway in the, in the streets. <laughs> and that's the way you are. That's the way you are wired. And when I ask people that have worked for you, that have worked with you, the canonical term for this is like servant leadership. And by the way, your CEO is the same way. 
when I listen to him talk, he embodies that same ethos and spirit of giving rather than taking. You know um, who else is like that is Jim Barnett. He is the exemplar of all exemplars when it comes to servant leadership. And for the audience listening, who's Jim Barnett? He's the former CEO of Glint, and he's now starting another company. Why is that an effective leadership style? Why does that work for you with your team? I don't know. I mean, it's who I am, and it's authentic. Do you ever get taken advantage of? Not that I'm aware of. Here, let me give you another example. Yeah. Six years ago-ish, we got home from a day at the canyons, a skiing day. And... We have an epoxy-coated garage floor that gets really slippery when it's wet. And when you're wearing ski boots without traction, it's hard to stand. So my son gets out of the car, and he slips and falls, and then he flings his helmet across the garage out of frustration, and it dents it. And these helmets are like 80 bucks. And then I look at him, and I'm like, oh, dude. I know you're frustrated and I know that that hurt, but buddy, that's 80 bucks. And he looks at me and he's like, dad, 80 bucks, no, no big deal. I'm like, oof, this is a, uh, this could be a good lesson. So then I filled out all of the paperwork and became a Lyft driver. And the purpose of me becoming a Lyft driver, and again, I'm EVP of worldwide sales at Instructure at this point, was I'm going to show my son how damn hard it is to earn $80 and how much time that can actually take. So fill everything out, do the background check, become a Lyft driver. And on Saturday, I'm thinking, I'm going to stick him in the passenger seat and we're going to match lifts in Park City. And I'm going to show him how long it takes to get to $80. So that took literally two Saturdays of all of our time before I was able to drill that lesson into his brain. I'm like, you think that was worth 80 bucks, man? He's like, oh my gosh. So this is the type of lesson I'm trying to teach is that for my kiddos, that type of thing. So yeah, the plowing of the driveways, I take them with me. I have four kids. I'm just trying to instill these values and behaviors that I learned growing up when we didn't have a ton. You gotta commit to the grind and you're gonna absolutely get after it and it's no joke. That gave me goosebumps. What a great story. How different are the lessons and the values that you want to impart on your teams from the values that you want to impart on your kids? It's really similar. You seek to serve others before you seek to serve yourself. Everybody does better. So it's really similar. So for instance, I've had unbelievable AEs that have been blessed to work with. And some of these sell four or five million dollars on a one and a half million dollar plan. They make more than a million dollars a year. And when it's at the end of the quarter and one of their friends and peers slips a deal and they're going to miss their plan and it's going to cause the company to potentially miss a deal, the amount of energy, enthusiasm, and grit that these incredibly high performing people exhibit at the end to go help others is absolutely what I look for. When you go out of your way to go help someone else that's going through a hard time and people see you do it, that becomes really, really infectious across the company and it just builds on itself. 
And so the very best teams, they win as individuals, they win as teams, and it makes the company win. And winning is what causes fun. It causes infection. It causes enthusiasm. You can't have fun if you're not winning. Is that ethos one of the things that would make it into the spreadsheet? One of the things that uh, AE trying to get out of an IC role going into their first-time manager? Maybe. That's a hard skill to build. That's more of a mindset and a behavior. Over time, you just want to help folks transition. I'm not a fan of hiring high-performing mercenaries. You think about Chad Johnson or Lucy's Terrell Owens. World-class football player, arguably one of the best receivers who's ever lived. Sure was a bad teammate, though. So I look for both. You have to be a killer teammate. And when you're a killer teammate and you're a killer performer, that is the type of value system that I look for. Is one of the things that when you look back with regret on moments in your life, personally or professionally, is it when you feel selfish? Is that one of the things that pains you the most is when you feel like you thought about yourself first and you saw a near-term negative feedback loop of that and it just reinforced that? Yeah, no, 100%. Yeah, when I'm at my worst, I'm thinking about me and I can't stand it. When I'm at my best, I'm thinking about others. And I don't know where that comes from or whatever. I think it was probably a really good lesson when I got my first good bite at the apple, a managerial job. When I first became an RVP or an RVP equivalent from an AE, I was autocratic. I was dictatorial. I was charged to take the next hill. I believed that I was the person that needed to manage the energy of the team. Come hell or high water, 4.30 on a Friday afternoon, we're going to do a pipeline review and it's going to feel like a proctology exam. I'm right, you're wrong. That was my mindset. And I probably did that for a year before I began to realize like, wow, this makes me miserable. This is not who I am as a human. This isn't what's required of the job. You can live your true authentic self and you can go out of your way to help others be successful. And so I toggled to who I really am and how I try to live my life. And that has led to pretty unbelievable success in my trajectory. That's really cool. All right, I have a couple more questions for you. Company values that BetterUp has, I'm not gonna go through them, but there's three that I found particularly interesting. And I wanna hear what those words mean to you and how you interpret them for your organization. Is that okay? Yeah, sure. Zest playfulness and grit. Those are the three that I want to talk about. Grit, no surprise. But what does zest mean? It just means, you know, be yourself, be interesting. Have zest. Zest for life. So it is something that we interview for. How? I'll just give you an example. We do silly things that show off our zest and playfulness. And so in the very first all hands, when Alexi was introducing me to the company and I had the opportunity to say a couple words, First question, like it was a fireside chat type thing. We maybe spent 10, 15 minutes like, hey, here's Mark and here's who he is. And this is why we're going to have so much fun together. And it's going to be an incredible journey. His first question is, is okay, which Muppet, he had to be a Muppet, would you be? Zesty little crazy questions that help you help people get to understand you better. What's the best fiction book you ever read? Why? Stuff like that. So I think 
zest is about having a zest for life, having a zest for each other and making work not super serious. What's your favorite interview question, Mark? Tell me something that you think I'm going to find fascinating that I likely don't understand or I haven't been exposed to. What are you trying to figure out? I'm trying to get to the heart of, can someone think on their feet? Because this is a very unusual question, number one. And number two, can they be a commercial teacher? I think the very best AEs, AMs, sales folks, revenue folks, they are not AEs. They are commercial teachers. And so I've had people answer that question, like, I'm going to teach you about chess. I've had people teach me about apiaries, literally bee farming. And then I've had people try to go incredibly deep into kind of sales nuance. And I'm like, oh, really? You didn't think I would understand that one? It shows a lot with regards to self-awareness, the ability to be fun, playful, think on your feet, and be a commercial teacher. I like that interview question. Let's just say I'm glad I'm interviewing you right now because I stumped myself a little bit on what I would answer there. Good. Field operations, like president of field operations is some fancy title I think you have. And I didn't quite understand what it meant. What does that mean? So at Better Update manages new business. So the sales teams, account management, customer success, the RFP and proposal writing teams, sales enablement, and people science. So these are PhDs or dev individuals a big fleet of those. And that's it. Why is your role organized in that way? Because everything is linked to customer value. And that's really what we're trying to drive towards. And by customer value, every company generally has, and this is actually something I learned from Dan. And I learned from LinkedIn. Every company has ARR targets, GRR targets, net retention targets, net promoter score targets, the efficient use of cash with the rule of 40. Every company, at least Series CD funded company, has a pretty good handle on those metrics. What they don't have a great handle on is the corollary to that from the customer's viewpoint, which is the true North Star customer value metrics that are really important to the customer. And by linking all of these functions where you're interfacing with the customer, it helps you do a much better job of taking the important metrics and KPIs for your company and translating those into customer value. And so finding these stories, finding the real proof of when you use my platform, it benefits you in the following way, and I can prove it. Dan shared with me a note that you sent to him on LinkedIn, and I'm going to read it. It said, hey, Dan, I was just thinking about you. And something I learned about the measurement of customer value, top line, gross revenue retention, net revenue retention are all equally as important as measuring the value that customers get. And then you put in quotes in a very non-squishy way. Very good lesson. Hope you're doing well. You couldn't have set me up for that any better. What a cool note to send him. What inspired that note? Was there some epiphany that you had or a light bulb where you were always so data oriented? that sometimes you would lose the script on couching conversations from the customer first? No, I mean, I always intuitively got it. Dan helped me crystallize it. 
he has a really good knack of taking complex things and making them drop dead simple. So yeah, I learned a lot from him. And that was one of the things. You posted on LinkedIn, you said you're allowed to see three metrics or KPIs while you're in the future to help you determine the health of your business. What three KPIs and metrics do you want to see before you're taken back to the present? What's your answer? It's interesting. I actually asked that question to Dan. I asked that question to Jeff Weiner. I've asked that question to tons of CEOs. And it's almost always the same. And it's the same as my answer. So at Instructure, this was actually an exercise we did in a board meeting. And the answer was, is we would want to know the market cap. So we were a public company. We would want to know the market cap because you can derive a ton about the health of your company from the value of your company. Like, are you growing? Are you hitting your numbers? Are you predictable? Are you dependable? Do you have your quarters and in years handled? Is your gross revenue retention correct? Is your net revenue retention correct? Do your customers love you? You tell a lot from enterprise value. That was the first one. The second one was Glint score. So I was a customer of Glint. And you can tell a lot about your company, about how your people are doing. Are they engaged? Are they having fun? Are you helping them hit their career aspirations, personal aspirations? Glint score is an unbelievable mashup metric of everything people-oriented. So that was the second metric. The third metric was a customer value metric. And I was using net promoter score at the time. But again, I learned, even though that those were my three things, like enterprise value of the company, Glint score, people score, and customer value, I was using net promoter score. That's actually not the best one. There's a better mashup, depending on your business, for customer value. That was Jeff Wiener's answer. That was also Shapiro's answer. What is the better metric than NPS? Well, it depends on your business. I'll just give you LinkedIn's example. At LinkedIn, in the learning business, there was something called an engaged quality learner. And this was an unbelievable data-driven mashup of, is our business doing good for that learner or not? And when the learner finds value, the company finds value, they don't churn, they buy more over time. I've already taken up 15 more minutes than I should. I want to take up another hour and a half. We're going to have to do a second session. Mark, this was awesome. Thank you. I appreciate your time. Thanks for having me, man. I totally forgot to do this part, but if you want to get a hold of Mark, they are hiring for everything. Email is mark.malloy at betterup.com. That's it. Thanks for listening. If you're just discovering the podcast, we have a lot more episodes with CROs from organizations like Snowflake, Twilio, Slack, LinkedIn, Box, etc. If you want to keep up or support the show, the best way to do so is by following us on Spotify, subscribing on Apple, and leaving a review. Thanks. Talk soon.